Well, good morning. morning. (laughs) Welcome to what I uh, like to call Youth Guy Sunday. Uh, For those of you who may not know who I am, I'm Zach Wiggins. I'm the minister of students here at the Antioch campus of Blue Valley Baptist Church. Uh, And as I was preparing this sermon, I I got to start thinking back at my time uh, at, at Blue Valley and amazingly, uh, I was here just a year ago, uh, and which is insane. Uh, I think COVID has warped the time continuum uh, and has changed the way sometimes we perceive time, especially of 2020, because it's hard to imagine that I was sitting here, standing here just a year ago. But it's great to be back with you. It's great to be seeing many of you who I already knew and meeting some of you who I didn't. Uh, and we've, Samantha and I have been extremely appreciative of the welcome uh, that you've given us. So with that out of the way, let us turn in our Bibles to John chapter 3, if you have your Bibles with you today. Uh, I was given the chance to choose any passage, uh, but in these things, I like sequence. Uh, So I decided to just continue with uh, the book of Matthew as we've been going through during our Advent season. And before we get into that, I'd like to point out something to you. Uh, We live in a culture, American culture specifically, especially in Johnson County, that defines need a little more broadly than most cultures. If if you don't believe me, uh, after the service, get your phones out and Google uh, things I didn't know I needed. The results are comical. Here's some of the things I found. The first thing I found pretty consistently is a silk pillow. Uh, or silk pillow cases that are easy on your hair and skin. Everybody needs that. A cell phone lens kit with 11 attachments for professional-looking pictures. It's amazing. Finally, my personal favorite that I found to be consistent within each one of these lists that I found uh, is a motion-activated toilet nightlight that shines in different colors. Uh, Now... All of you who didn't get that for Christmas are going to go buy one now, I understand. But uh, that list kind of proves there are things that we define as need that simply aren't necessary, simply aren't essential. Right? In fact, in America, I would argue that there are needs that are overlooked that we have uh, for other things that are simply unnecessary and frankly, at times, useless. So today, I think we're going to be looking at a passage that describes those in biblical times who had the same problem in a bit of a deeper way than the silly lists that we can find on the internet. So if you have your Bibles, uh, turn to John chapter 3. We're going to be starting in verse 1. We're going to read to verse 6. We're going to take a break and we'll continue on after that. Here's what it says. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. Repent. For the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Now John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. Then Jerusalem and all Judea and all of the region about the Jordan were going out to him, and they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now, this passage starts out introducing a character that many of us know, especially from Sunday school, is the the wild man, John the Baptist, right? But it's important to note 
that in Matthew's gospel, that's not the first thing he points out, right? And true to form, as he's done from chapter one, uh, it's important that we, he's, we're giving it a description of John and we get a summarization of John's message, but also how it fulfills Old Testament prophecy. Remember, the message of Matthew is one that is being primarily written to a Jewish audience. So Matthew, again, as he does from chapter one, is proving the legitimacy of his gospel account through the use of Old Testament scripture. In this passage, he does that through the reference that we read in Isaiah. But after we move past that, we get to that, that uh, figure that we're all very familiar with from Sunday school, a man who's dressed in, in camel's fur and eats locusts and honey. Uh, and this could really point to the fact that John was a part of a, a really secret group of Jews, but we really don't know. What we do know and what is important to note is that he was completely separate from the culture of that time. Uh, and, and completely and probably looked at a little weirdly, right? I mean, the guy comes out of the desert eating a protein snack covered in honey. You know, not our protein snack, their protein snack. But he's, he's weird. He's just odd. But people are still coming and flocking to him. Why? What, what was he doing that people were coming to him for? He was baptizing people primarily. But John's baptism was a little bit different than what we do here at Blue Valley when we have a baptism. It was the biggest difference, of course, between the two is that Christ had not yet died on the cross. Uh, and therefore, John's baptism is not one that signifies salvation. Rather, John's baptism was a baptism of repentance. But it's important to, to know it wasn't just for repentance sake. John had a bigger target than just repentance. It was repentance for the sake of the Messiah. Everything about John's ministry, as we'll point to in a second, was about the Messiah, especially his baptism. He knew that the Messiah was coming, and he knew that the people needed to be prepared for whatever the Messiah was about to do. Of course, there were some skeptics of John's ministry. Read with me in verse 7. When he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warns you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not presume to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and, the, and thrown into the fire. Well, of course, being the Sadducees and Pharisees, they couldn't leave well enough alone. The simple fact is the, the amount of people that were attending John's baptism and his claims against not only the Pharisees, but also the governor at that time were enough to get their attention to Put it plainly, Pharisees and Sadducees didn't like people when they rocked the boat. These two groups were essentially religious political parties. And much like the political parties of today, they like to be the ones in control. And, of course, have influence with those who had power. So when a man like John was preaching against both them and the ruling power of Israel at that time, they tended to keep tabs on him. But imagine, if you will, here you are in the middle 
of your ministry, baptizing and, and preaching repentance for the coming of the Messiah. And there's a group in the midst, essentially jeering and thinking that they have absolutely no need for repentance. That was obviously the Pharisees and Sadducees. And, and you can see why John had the contempt he had for them. And his contempt went as far as he insulted them, calling them a brood of vipers, but he also insulted what they believed. He didn't even let them get a word in. When he said, you know, you are, don't consider yourself a son of Abraham, that's great. It's not going to help you what's coming. The Pharisees believed they were children of Abraham or, or the true Israel. They believed themselves to be found in God's mercy simply for being who they were. But John makes it clear in his rebuke that absolutely no one is safe. He tells them to repent and bear fruit or God would destroy them just as a farmer cuts down and burns a tree that doesn't produce fruit. This is strong language. So clearly John has no love of the Pharisees and, and clearly his hatred of them stems from their unwillingness to repent. Well, I don't know if you've read the rest of the Bible, but spoiler alert, they don't listen to him. In fact, they don't listen to Jesus after him either. And I think we can get why John is the way he is toward these Pharisees. But I think in order to really understand that, we have to understand why John is so passionate about this radical message that's frankly going to get him in serious, serious trouble. I think we should read on in 11 and 12. Here's what it says. I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I. I whose sandals am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. To really understand why John is so passionate, why John is so passionate about this radical Messiah is to get into John's mind and try to understand what he believes about that Messiah. And the very first thing he tells us, he creates a contrast between himself and the Messiah. His statement, his sandals, I am not worthy to carry, is more than just plain, humble language. In Jewish society, the feet of a person were considered absolutely filthy. This is why the lowest of servants were the ones that washed feet. Uh, so carrying sandals would have been just as degrading of a position as the foot washer. And John claims not to be worthy of even this. After he makes that comparison between himself and the Messiah, he then creates a comparison between his baptism and the Messiah's baptism. The Messiah's baptism being one with fire and the Holy Spirit and his baptism of just being simple repentance. To, to put a picture of that, John's baptism is just a simple indication of repentance of sin, right? The people would be baptized and say, I don't want to sin anymore. And that signifies my, my willingness of repentance versus the Messiah's baptism, right? Right? While John's baptism doesn't really change much for the baptized, maybe it gives them a new point of view about themselves or, or their sin, 
the Messiah's baptism will be changing the person completely. The language of fire and the Holy Spirit would not have been one that is lightly used. But John gives a clear warning after he makes that comparison that not everyone will be a part of this new baptism. John uses the same type of language that he used with the Pharisees. He tells everyone that the Messiah will not keep what should be destroyed. Through another farming illustration of the chaff and the wheat, it shows that the farmer who keeps the wheat will be put into stores, right? And then the chaff that is falling down in the, in the air is simply kindling. It's only good for being burned. So not only does John, John is not bright-eyed and bushy-tailed when it comes to the Messiah. He has realistic expectations of who this Messiah is and also what he expects of his people. So what about us? We're on the other side of Christ's ministry, of his death and his resurrection. In fact, many of us in this room have studied these stories time and time and time again. How does looking at what John says about the Messiah help us at the end of 2020? Well, I'll bring your attention back to what we originally started with. What do we really need in this life? The, the easy Sunday school answer, uh, soundbite, <laughs> frankly, we typically respond with is what do we really, well, I just need Jesus. Absolutely, you do absolutely just need Jesus. But do we have any kind of understanding how deep that need really goes? Do we really have an understanding of, of why we need Jesus, of who we are and why we need Jesus? I think the first way to, to try to understand how deep our need for Christ goes by stating something obvious, but something that I think we need to be reminded of daily. And that is the Messiah reveals our need. He does that in a few different ways. One of the ways he does this is by revealing our need for him through our daily needs in life. Now, obviously, you know, food, he provides that we as believers can recognize that he provides that for us. And that's a, a way to recognize that we need Christ in everyday life. But there's some deeper needs that, that point us to him. Forget about the lists of silly junk that we get at Christmas or we want to get at Christmas there are deeper needs that all of us on some level feel. One of those things is even the world says you need is companionship. Right? It could be a romantic companionship. It could be something as simple as a good friendship. But at some point in life, you get lonely and perceive that there is a need there. Perhaps that reality is, some, is closer to others after this holiday season. Our little family uh, had Christmas. John Silas is three, so he's absolutely a joy around to be, uh, to be around at Christmas. Uh, every single uh, present that he opened, he absolutely opened with joy, and it was awesome. But Samantha and I still felt a hole missing because we're typically celebrating Christmas with our larger family. So even there, we felt that need. 
And, and I've been married to Samantha for seven years. We've, we've done quite a few Christmases together. We actually sat down and reminisced about all the different Christmases we had together. And before that marriage, I had a lot of ideas on what that companionship would be like, right? And as we all do before marriage. And I think many of us try to look to that companionship to fill that need. And obviously, at some point, we get disappointed. For instance, seven years ago, I had hair, <laughs> right? Uh, I don't know what happened. Ask Samantha. Uh, but no, that's, it's not her fault. Um, it's genetics, folks. It's genetics. It turns out companionship isn't what I thought it would be, right? And it, it turns out it, it's, it's hard, <laughs> It turns out sometimes I feel lonely even then. Samantha sometimes even feels lonely then. People fail us. Friendships, church members, business partners, and yes, even our spouses fail us. If our focus is on fulfilling the need for our loneliness through other people, we will end up lonelier than we were before. On top of that problem, especially in America, we have the many promises of success and the supposed happiness it brings. Just in Johnson County alone, I've noticed that there are people who live in houses, drive cars, and live lives that they simply can't afford, all for the same reason, to feel like we made it or feel like someone else who did make it. And and frankly, even if we can afford those things, we are absolutely kidding ourselves if we think that somehow we are fulfilled in attaining them and we are fooling ourselves in playing a dangerous game with our souls. We, We know that material things, while they offer a little bit of happiness, maybe a toilet nightlight maybe offered you happiness this season, but they don't last we still end up feeling that need. And see, in the midst of all of that, Christ reveals himself. He's he's begging you to say, this isn't going to fulfill you, this isn't going to fulfill you, this isn't going to fulfill you. There's only one thing that will fulfill you. Now, obviously, two things that I just mentioned, success, companionship, they're not news to you. You know that things without Christ at the center will leave us empty. And John the Baptist could be loosely referring to these kinds of needs in our text, but I think he's alluding to something that is deeper and the root cause of all of our issues. Notice that the term bearing fruit or keeping fruit seems to be central to John's message, especially in that of repentance. When he confronts the Pharisees, he even claims that they are guilty of not bearing the fruit that the Messiah demands. The fruit, of course, that he's talking about is derived from someone who lives a holy and righteous life. A person who would bear fruit would be one that is good and dependent upon the Lord for everything in their life. Of course, the Pharisees believe that of themselves, right? They, they think that they have it all together. Who they are is enough to be holy, to be righteous. No one follows the law like they do. No one studies the scriptures like they did. So how then could John be lecturing them on righteousness and living a holy life pleasing to God? 
They were the ones who invented a culture of righteousness and holiness in the first place. The answer is simple. Compared to the Messiah, their righteous fruit bearing, our righteous fruit bearing, and their holy heritage of Abraham are, as Paul would put it, filthy rags. Anything that they can credit to themselves as good and holy, God considers to be nothing, to be dirt. The reason John's ministry was about repentance was because he had just a small understanding of who the Messiah was, and he knew humanity was not ready for him. Even now, we sit here and and we can invent ways that we are holy and we are righteous. But all those do is reveal our need for a savior. One who is truly holy, righteous, and good. It's Christ's character that reveals humanity's need in him. Which brings me to our next truth. The the Messiah fulfills our need. Humanity is sinful. In fact, we're so sinful that even when we try to get to the mark, we create extra steps, just like the Pharisees. I was a a pastor's kid growing up. I was four years old when my dad started into the ministry and been to many churches that my dad served at. And one thing that I always noticed is, and that I didn't come to realize until later was every church had this subculture, right? Things that were acceptable and things that weren't in that church, right? For instance, uh, Samantha and I, Uh, served at a church that actually my dad previously served at. I don't advise that. Don't do it. You'll always be seen as the kid. But it was a church in uh, lower Alabama, or as I like to call it, L.A. And we were, I was a student minister there, and Samantha and I kind of teamed that up. And we had a specific youth uh, who had some crazy hair, right? It was a different color almost every time she came to that church. And as you can imagine, in the deep south, uh, that's not how you go to church. You wear your Sunday best. You make sure you're presentable. And that's an easy target that many of us can identify as a subculture that adds, that, think, that makes us think we need things that we really don't. Another area that I found was seminary. I guarantee every single one of you, if you want to come to class with me this next semester and sit in whatever classroom I'm in, uh, and I'll mention something that Blue Valley is doing, that the leadership of Blue Valley has said, or whatever, uh, anything, and I guarantee you there will be at least two or three critics, maybe even the professor who is a critic, about what we are doing, who thinks we are wrong, who thinks we should change because of it. And it's not really anything cemented in this. We can maybe loosely refer to it. But you see how these subcultures are created, that we've added things on that really weren't there in the first place. What about Blue Valley? I haven't been here long enough to to notice those and really call them out, but I guarantee you, there's an inner Pharisee in each and every one of us 
who wants to create something that simply is not a part of what we need. Simply does not bear fruit. Things like, if you are a Christian, you have to belong to a specific political party. And if you don't, you're a Marxist. Come on, folks. That's just silly. (laughs) And it's not what the Messiah envisioned for his church. See, the, the, the pure truth of it all is that we can invent many systems and many cultures and none of them will ever live up to who Christ is and how much we need him. See, we have absolutely no hope to tame righteousness, holiness, or goodness, but Christ provided all of those things through the cross. We now have an advocate in Christ who even though we are not righteous, we are not holy, and we are definitely not good, he imparts those to us. The way he does this is through what our passage of scripture alludes to as a future event that is now an event that happens every single day. John claimed that the Messiah would baptize in the Holy Spirit. If you are a believer today, that event has already happened in your life. And though we are still going through the process of of being made more and more like Christ, today the Holy Spirit dwelling in you means that you have been made righteous by Christ through his work on the cross. You could, who could not gain anything, was given everything. So don't add to it. There's nothing else we need, folks, except Jesus Christ. There's nothing else that we need other than the gospel. Our subcultures don't do us any help. Christ does. Now, obviously, when the Holy Spirit dwelled in you, uh, not everything in your life was completely fixed, right? And you didn't become this bright, shining star of a person. Lord knows I didn't. As you can tell, the effects of sin are still around. However, what Christ gives you is a hope and a guarantee that he will not leave you and that all things, all things will be made new him so that nothing will leave you empty nothing will leave you lonely and nothing will leave you broken he gives us the hope and that changes life itself even the loneliness loneliest and saddest times we can be reminded of our new life in Christ and his promise to make all things new And that is enough. Amen.